Thank you so much for joining me, Mia. Thank you, Megan. And I'm also a whole mama now, so that's fun. <laughs> oh, you are. So like Brandon said, happy Mother's Day early. So um, I would love to kind of steer this conversation in kind of three parts. You know, I heard the Congresswoman say yesterday, all of us stand on the shoulders of someone else. And if you've ever been into the Congresswoman's office, she has a picture of Shirley Chisholm, Congresswoman yeah. Shirley Chisholm in her office. And, you know, thinking about now being the new senior health policy advisor, I know I stand on your shoulders as you were, you know, very vital and instrumental of introducing the Mamas Act uh, in 2015. So uh, I just want to take the time to kind of go Go through memory lane with mamas and then talk about like what has happened with it, all the good movement that has occurred and what has been enacted to law. Um, we are currently working on what I've just been affectionately been calling Mamas 2.0 um, about, you know, that's the thing about when legislation passes, right? You have room to add new pieces of legislation and then kind of like what additional steps do we really need to think about? So um I want to turn it over to you to kind of start and, and talk about why did you start looking into maternal health and, and what was the crux of even going down this journey of looking into this piece of legislation? I, I'm so glad to be doing this on the, you know, just before Mother's Day in particular. And also, um, I'm so excited to be here in your, in, as you're fulfilling your current capacity, Megan, uh, it's such a, a a pleasure. I appreciate also the parallel that you drew in terms of each one of us standing on the shoulders of, of others, right? That really makes the work of, um, of the Congresswoman even more meaningful because this is, this is legacy work, but I'm also quite clear, especially with respect to the Mamas Act, that this is work that will um, essentially save lives and, you know, the lives that aren't yet here or the lives that are here, you know, people who are yet to become mothers. And um, I'm, I'm so very proud historically that, that you and I are intersecting at this particular moment. So what, you know, you asked me, you know, what initially spurred the, um, really the, the, the force behind the Mothers and Offspring Mortality and Morbidity Act, that's the Mamas Act, M-O-M-M-A, and so in 2016, I joined the Congresswoman's office as her health policy fellow, as you mentioned in my bio. And at the time, I was the, um, speaking of standing on shoulders of giants, I was the, the health policy fellow named after the, uh, initially, historically, that fellowship is named after Lewis Stokes, who for many people on the in, in the virtual world already know, but others don't. Louis Stokes was the co-founder of the Congressional Black Caucus in uh, 1952, if I'm not mistaken, amongst um, about 14 other people, um, including Shirley Chisholm. And, uh, but he was also the, the founder of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust. And under the Brain Trust, as Megan mentioned, uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus were and and beyond looked to the CBC for specific guidance around certain health issues that they were then raised in policy. And so Mr. Stokes passed that mantle on to Congresswoman Dele Delegate um, Donna Christensen, who represent 
used to represent the U.S. Virgin Islands and the, the territories. She then passed it on to Congresswoman Kelly when Congresswoman Kelly came in office in 2013. I have joined the Congresswoman's office three years later as her fellow, um, and it was just an incredible time. I was supposed to be there for two years as her fellow. She ended up hiring me about six months into my fellowship. And at that time, we were in the minority. I can't, I'm not even going to take the time to talk about what 2016 looked like, right? Because politically, it was quite a transformational year for so many people and, uh, well, really for the world. And so at the time, going into the next year, uh, 2017, we were, we were doing a lot through the brain trust, right? A lot around clinical trials. We were doing a lot around dental health, um, but we were also still in the minority. And what that means politically is that not necessarily, um, well, generally um, the minority party doesn't necessarily expect to pass a lot of really big legislation. But one thing that happened that, that year, we started, the Congresswoman and I, um, just receiving stories. People would come up to the Congresswoman, certainly because of her role as the uh, Health Brain Trust Chair, but also just given her her warmth and her effervescence, they would come up and talk to her about different things. And so one of the stories that um, someone shared with the Congresswoman was a story of Kira Johnson. And Kira Johnson is the daughter of a name that many of you would recognize, um, uh, uh, Judge Hatchett, Judge Glenda Hatchett. And Judge Glenda Hatchett's son was uh, Charles, was married to Kira Johnson. Kira was the picture of health. Um, mid 30s, mid to late 30s, black woman, similar to my age. She was a polyglot, which meant she spoke more than one language, multiple languages. She would race cars. Um, she jumped out of airplanes. She lived all over the world. She had a baby boy already and she was pregnant. She and Charles with their second. And Judge Hatchett shared with the Congresswoman that upon um, giving birth uh, via C-section to her to her second son, um, Kira bled out 12, I think about 12 hours after um, giving birth to her second son, and she never saw him grow up. And it was it was due to a um a, a cut that that severed one a, a, a main artery in her um uh, in her midsection. And unfortunately, the physicians didn't listen to Kira. Um, or to her family, and these were not these were not people who were closed mouth people. I, I just told you she was the daughter in law of a major judge, and not just a major judge, a major judge who had a major television show on a major um, platform, right? So, um, so when we heard that story, we were just completely taken aback and very sad for the family. And so, um, from there, we wanted to do something to honor. Kira's legacy. And so the Congresswoman and I put our heads together and we we came up with a what was effectually a a, li a listening uh it was a it was a briefing, essentially a congressional briefing, but it was also a space to receive these other stories and to also tell Kira's story. And so after we did that, and that was early 2017, we then, the Congresswoman and I made a pledge to the family and to other families that we would do something legislatively about that. And so over the course of, uh, of that Congress, we wrote what, was, what would be born as the Mamas Act. And it is a five-prong, um, at least at the time it was a five-prong piece of legislation that looked at um, a number of things, which we didn't just pull out of thin air. We met with all kinds of people. 
um, people from uh, March of Dimes to the National Birth Equity Collective to Merck for Mothers to even that woman who wrote that book uh, on, you know, what's it called? Uh, what to do when you're pregnant or something like that. You know, everybody has this book. I have the book, the, the author sign is on my, anyway, we met with everybody. Um, and so we eventually came up with these five prongs that, that uh, birth, birth the Mamas Act. And basically it was, you know, the legislation called for provisions of technical assistance for states with respect to reporting um, maternal mortality and maternal morbidity through standardized data uh, collection methods. Um, the Mamas Act also called for um, instituting best practices for what are called um, MMRCs or maternal mortality review committees. Um, and, the, and review committees are highly significant because those are the boards that look at uh, the data and use the data to come up with best practices for preventing maternal deaths and for also identifying um, deaths and in, that are pregnancy related or postpartum related and make sure that they are written on death certificates in the correct way. Um, probably the most significant part of this legislation, and you'll likely talk about this some more, Megan, is that the Mamas Act called for the expansion of Medicaid and CHIP coverage for postpartum care for new moms past 60 days, um, and, and specifically for up to a year. Um, I am, as I mentioned, I'm a new mother. I couldn't imagine, my son's now 17 months, I couldn't imagine if I were uh, a mother receiving Medicaid that I only had coverage for 60 days after having a child. My body wouldn't, would not have even healed. My body is, is only just recently healing, um, almost, you know, 18 months after giving birth. So think about that for sure. Um, the Mamas Act also at the time called for support of um, the uh, Alliance for Innovation um, on maternal health so or, or AIMS. These are like, this alliance looks at um, like different uh, data-driven practices uh, and safety bundles that like uh, emergency rooms would use when they're encountering women. And then finally, it called for establishment of um, regional centers of excellence, uh, addressing, addressing provider training around bias and, and cultural competency. And so it, this was a big baby basically birthing this birthing this legislation was no small feat as i said it took over uh, a congressional se uh, season to write it and to receive and to really court um different different players in the space to ensure that we were being extremely thoughtful and diligent and visionaries because miss kelly the other thing I've, i i i need to mention and if you take nothing else from this Call the Mamas Act was the first comprehensive maternal health bill in the history of Congress, in the history of all Congress. And I'm so very proud that the Congresswoman and I wrote this uh, legislation together. Um, I, I will also give give credence to the first person who wrote a bill um, around maternal health um, from the great state of Washington, and um, and she was not a member of the Democratic Party; she was a Republican. And, um, and and so the Congresswoman worked alongside her Republican colleagues to uh, also, because again, she was in the minority at that time to raise the, the, the point. But when it comes to the most comprehensive, the first comprehensive law, it was the Mama's Act, or uh, policy was the Mama's Act. And um, I said a lot, so I'll be quiet and, and turn it back over to you. No, that was beautiful. And I think a great overview of establishing what the Mamas Act is um, and how you got it to this point. And so, like you said, I definitely want to talk about the wins that have happened because it's very fortunate th that we've been able to get 
large chunks of this piece of legislation over the finish line. You shared your personal story regarding insurance coverage, right? Mama's uh, allowed for states, Mama's in its original state of the Medicaid expansion from 60 days to one year permanent, but uh, creating that bipartisanship, uh, that piece was pulled out into what was effectively known as helping moms. Yes. And we were able to get that perma- permanently established for states for, for states to opt into passing uh, Medicaid postpartum extension coverage from 60 days to one year. And we're very excited because 33 states, I believe now, uh, have opted to do that. Missouri did it this week. And I know I sent the link to the Congresswoman and she was just yelling and just saying, (laughs) so excited that's getting done. And as we think about Mamas 2.0, one of the things that we're going to continue to do is say, every state needs to do this. So one of the provisions that will stay in there is making that provision permanent for every state. They must do it. And another piece that was so vital that got across the finish line, uh, once again, pulling out a lot of these bipartisan pieces of legislation out of the mamas was the Maternal Health Quality Improvement Act. And that, you know, what you spoke about establishing grants under HHS to help uh, improve best practices regarding maternal care. And so, you know, mamas is one of those pieces of legislation that has, have had it's birthed other children. I know it's birthed other children. (laughs) It's gotten across the finish line. Uh Everyone's super supportive of this cause because it's one of those causes that has so much bipartisan support, right? And we can see the legs and the new children that are coming out of it. And so I think what I want to talk about is kind of like, you know, as you spoke about like the 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 reason why you created this bill and I think about the stories you just shared and you know I think about Serena Williams <laughs> Serena Williams of all people if no one of was going to listen people. to anybody listen Serena does not keep her mouth closed right why would no one listen to her when she said I have a medical history of uh, of an embolism I believe it, it was and she was very clear I don't feel well I need for someone to look into this. It took major insistence for someone to look into into that. And God forbid anything would have would have happened to her. Um, and we would have been without the greatest athlete of our generation. Right? Just by listening. Mm-hmm. And you know, and by listening great, to black women in particular. And, and that's a great segue of just like where we are today, because all the work that we've been doing, all the legislation that has been passing, the CDC comes out with a report in 2021 saying the maternal mortality rate has actually increased, mm-hmm. you know, and I know like legislation takes some time to, you know, really be impactful. But as we are continuing to have this conversation in the national lens, like this is a crucial moment. We need to really look at the data. We need to really make sure we're implementing these policies because, you know, and I know, you know, the data, but I'm gonna throw it out for the audience, you know, 3.6 million women give birth in this country every year. And, you know, the CDC says that right now we're at 32.9 deaths per 100,000 live births. And that has continued to increase from 23.8 in 2020. 20.1 in 29. And what that equates to, because, you know, give it some raw numbers, is about 1,200 women dying per year just due to childbirth. And then we also learned that 84% of pregnancy-related deaths are preventable. 
And so it's those little things like listening, listening when a woman, a black woman says, I don't feel well, something is wrong. We hear the stories over and over again. Woman in uh, Louisiana gained nine pounds in one week, kept going to the provider. Something is wrong. My body isn't doing well. She passes out and dies. And so these are just some of the things that I would love to talk to you about in the sense of we always talk about the workforce, right? Mm-hmm. And making sure that we have providers that look like us, yes. um, that understand us. But when you look at some of the data, 5% of all active physicians identify as Black. Mm-hmm. And then of that 5%, 11% are OBGYNs. Mm-hmm. And so and once again, 3% of all doctors are Black women. So we're, you know, as Black women look for providers to care for them, they're very few and far in between. Um, do you have any thoughts about ways that we can bolster and increase the workforce, especially in terms of diversity? Yeah, so the, the first thing that I'll say is one shouldn't have to go to medical school to learn how to deeply listen. We learned that in before kindergarten. My son is 17 months and he's learning to listen very well. In fact, he knows that if he doesn't listen, his safety is on the line, right? So he's not even been on this earth for two years to know that. So for any physician or really anybody who, not even just a physician, who's a care provider to um, discount the uh, concerns of women, of families, of birthing peoples, particularly in the moment, is not only extraordinarily um, dangerous, but it's also, that's just basic, right? That's just basic human value, uh, a, a basic human valuation pro- process and practice, right? Um, and so when you're talking about what do we, what are some things that we need to do, I'm going to talk about it certainly from a legislative standpoint, because that's essentially where my level of expertise comes from. And, as, and, and that's also where many people who are likely in the audience will think about it. Well, the number 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 of things we need to look at. For one, from a political, I'll use my friend Daniel Daniel Dawes' terms, from political determinants of health perspective, there needs to certainly be um, or or people who are training to become medical providers would do well to also learn how to become powerful advocates on the in the policy arena, right? Because it's their voices, especially those who are current medical students and students who are going for higher education across the healthcare continuum, they need to be able to connect the dots between how things are in terms of their own schooling experience and how you can make them better. And that matters when they learn what the appropriations process is, you know, where, how do monies, how are monies allocated to things like uh, residency spots, or how are monies allocated to support the building and construction of new medical schools, or, um, or public health schools, or, you know, where do you go in terms of um, the person to move the needle on policies that, again, not necessarily having to do with the money, that's appropriations, but um, authorizing programming, you know, for, uh, for for new pipelines. And so that's the first thing that I'll say is from a political standpoint, from a policy standpoint, anyone who's training to become a provider has to be able to understand the political process. Um, and, and then the other thing I'll say is for sure, investments, not just in STEM and STEAM education, obviously, right? So, and, and I'm talking about way before high school, 
Um, and that's again, these are bipartisan issues, just ensuring that the drumbeat is 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 really at a steady rhythm in terms of investing in um, in early education. Um, and so that involves being in touch with members of Congress who are on the labor and edu labor and ed subcommittee, or excuse me, labor and ed committee, or um, and and not just solely within you know having the conversation about workforce of health or health workforce within the you know traditional walls of of medicine. These are conversations that have to be really evaluated from intersectional lenses, from socially determinant lenses. Um, and so, yeah, I would say start with the policy for sure. There's so many other ways you can answer this question, Megan, but I'm going to really uh, stick my, my, my toes, you know, 10 toes to the ground with it starts with the policy. No, and I love that answer because, you know, coming with my background, I'm an RN by trade and I went into hospital operations and, you know, many of us don't really know the policy, like how policy impacts how we provide care, you know, um, and to share about how I pivoted from hospital operations and acute care here, I was having a conversation with my best friend and she wanted to, you know, she wants to be a mom and now she is, but, you know, at that time she said, I want to have a baby, but I don't want to die. Mm, I literally said similar words to Ms. Kelly. I said, well, I said, I'm going to have this baby and I don't want to die. But I'll actually talk about that some more. Maybe I want to hear more of what you're saying, please. Yes. And so I looked at my best friend because in my mind, this is the safest place to give birth. What do you mean you're afraid to, to die? And so she said it multiple times. And then I finally looked into the issue and I was like, wow. I did not know what was going on. And I think sometimes, you know, you've probably seen it. We are trained in our silos, right? So I was med surge, I wasn't women's health. So I know how to take care of you if you have a heart attack or have COPD. But if you come in here with a baby, that is just out of my realm. Mm -hmm. And so that really was the driving factor for me to understand policy. And I think now what you just eloquently said is, how do we target appropriations? What does that mean? What is the legislative process? Okay, we passed that, but if we're not putting money to these programs, mm -hmm. it's pretty much non-functional. So, you know, another piece in the workforce conversation in terms of diversifying the workforce, maybe in terms of race, is also professions, making sure mm -hmm. that's one of the things we're trying to do in Mamas 2.0, give more voice to the doulas and this yes. whippery programs and how do we make sure that they are accessible to women who want to have them? Because a lot of times what we're hearing is women want to have them, but they don't know how to access them. They don't know where to find them. They want to make sure they do know what they're doing. And so, you know, how do we bolster those pipelines of clinicians that we didn't really think of in the past, but are a huge vital force in this sector of in decreasing the maternal mortality rates? And so another component that I'll talk about uh, regarding the workforce is more mental health providers. Mm -hmm. Looking at the statistics regarding the maternal mortality rates and how mental health is playing such a huge part yes. but only three to four percent of our workforce even looks like us to understand us to really have that nuanced conversation mm -hmm. about how we're feeling um to help bring those uh statistics down so I love what you said about the policy aspect as mm -hmm. well and you know I definitely just want to make sure 
we're putting in plugs for the, the variety of workforces that we need to target and, you know, bringing in, you know, our HBCUs mm -hmm. and different institutions because, you know, they are the crux of kind of like our, 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 our culture. Yes. And, you know, we need to be having these conversations like in academia, but also, you know, when I think of our culture, I think of the church. Mm -hmm. you know, how do we incorporate wellness into some of our programs? And so, you know, I had something here regarding training, right? But you already spoke to that. Like, it doesn't take going to school to know how to listen. Yeah. <laughs> you but, know? you know, I really liked what you just said if you don't mind, I'd love to address three of the points that you just made. So the first, I'm going to work backwards in terms of the role of, of HBCUs. Um, so I'm a graduate of two HBCUs. Cheney University is the first historically Black college and university in the nation. And I went there for undergrad. And then I went to Meharry Medical for my training in health policy. But I'm also a product of of two PWIs, one, the whitest of the white institutions ever in Oxford, and it's all white people there. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And then I also attended Vanderbilt for, for starting my doctoral studies. And so I'm very, I'm keenly aware of not just the, it wasn't, it wasn't so much a major difference between the four in terms of the quality of education, but in terms of the quality of my, um, attention to I was extremely socially astute to the situations around me in each of those scenarios there was something bigger um, than the academics going on around the world that was either a conversation around um, around uh, racial violence um, so for instance when I was in Vanderbilt that's when the the um, court decision came down for George Zimmerman uh, with respect to the slaying of of Trayvon Martin, right? Um, or, and, and so many other conversations around these moments where I've, you know, just been in these dis different institutions. And all of that wears on the body. All of that informs the way, especially Black women um, who are highly educated go through the world. And what we know, what the research says or, and, and consistently shows is women, Black women who, who give birth to babies in the United States because of their experiences associated with racial stress. When, if they, you know, when they do give birth to babies, the babies tend to be on average lower in birth, birth weight compared to not only white women who have never been to college, but also uh, African women who have just recently matriculated to the United States. So it's not a matter of, of, um, of, of race. It really has to do in a lot of ways with the stresses associated um, with with uh, with feelings of racism and not even being stressed personally uh, in terms of being the direct um, victim or recipient of whatever the issue is, but certainly seeing yourself in the largest situation. So when you were talking about mental health, that is, essentially comes to my mind as well. I gave birth to my son um, during height COVID, right? So I was, I was, I, 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 I became pregnant in early uh, 2021 and gave birth to him at the end of 2021. And so there was so much going on in the world at that time as well. COVID was a thing. People were home and not interacting with each other. Um, remote work is was certainly the main thing. I think you'd spend a lot of your time, your beginning time with the Congresswoman's office in, in a remote scenario. Um, and then also there was, um, there was a lot going on in terms of racial violence. Brianna Taylor, um, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, 
we we had just also lost um, the young man who was you know just playing you know violin and walking home um you know the the young man who was feeding kittens and everything he had just been died and then or just just been shot by police and then we were also dealing with of course George Floyd so all of that happened across 2020 and 2021 and all of that was certainly wearing on my body and then I, I will be a bit vulnerable here because it matters in terms of my own pregnancy story and it matters in terms of my championship of the Mamas Act I was assaulted in 2020 and um outside of my home and it was it was it was it was a it was a, a harrowing event um, and then unfortunately, I was also assaulted while I was pregnant. Um, and both of these scenarios were by strangers. Someone was trying to jack my car in the second um, scenario. But in between that time, I took a sabbatical from work. At the time I was working for the American Medical Association, I took a sabbatical because I had to make sure that emotionally I was safe and I needed to make sure that mentally I was prepared to handle whatever issues I, you know, presenting with. And apparently, um, anyway, there were just some, like I said, it was an emotionally heavy time. But I knew that in order for me to do the work that I'm called to do in the world, a part of which is to be a champion with respect to maternal health, you have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of yourself. And, and so um, when it comes to cumulative stresses on Black women's bodies, that where that certainly shows up in terms of our experiences with becoming mothers. Um, and we've got to be open about it. I don't, I don't, what I just shared with you is obviously recorded into perpetuity and that's the thing, but I don't generally share this with people because there is also this feeling of, well, what could I have done to stop a certain situation, you know, which is not an unhelpful exercise, but it misses the point because the conversation is systemic. It's not necessarily um, a matter of, and you know, if you're talking about interpersonal stresses associated with racism, that's one thing. That's a one person to one person interaction. And that level of interaction can sometimes be mitigated through building relationships, right? But if you're talking about cumulative stressors, hearing stories on the news across a, a long period of time and social of social isolation and then dealing with all other you know stresses associated with work or with with higher going for a higher education or you know any all of those um situations scenarios that that you and I and, and many other people were experiencing that wears on the body in a way that we don't see and so the to your point about mental health providers um, I was really fortunate to be able to, I think I used a smart app to find a provider of color um, to help usher me through that particular, that particular period in my life. And it was, it was a, a game changer for me. I didn't stay with her ultimately because um, in my personal experience, I knew that my situation was not chronic. It was, it was acute and I needed the, the care at that time. Um, and so I do other things right now to ensure my own well-being. I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I love. I practice hot yoga. Um, I take many walks under canopies, and I spend a lot of time in nature. I live in a part of DC that's close to gardens and arboretum and all kinds of places. So I I spend a lot of time there. I garden myself. I spend a lot of time putting my hands in the dirt, which my son loves because he loves putting his hands in the dirt. So, you know, and I, I keep close to my family and my loved ones, and I'm not afraid to say I need space or I need help, right? Because I know that my, not only does my physical and my emotional health depend on it, but the output of my work depends on my ability to be well. Um, and so 
you know, when you're a champion of particular um, health policies, you've got to live the life that you're trying to create for other people. I love that you say that you're comfortable of saying I need space and I need help because that is just so crucial of being emotionally intelligent enough to say when you need to step back and when you also need to seek help. But I also think, you know, we need to do a better job of making sure people know that it's okay to say these things. You know, we don't need to hold on to this. We need to find the tools to be able to deal with so many stressors, not, and like you alluded to, like the things that are happening to you directly, but then the things that are happening to us as a society, because all those examples you gave weighed so heavily on so many people and it manifests itself through our health. And then unfortunately to our children when mm-hmm. when being pregnant and giving birth. And one thing I know I have been forgetting to say is please everyone who's on the WebEx, well on the Zoom, if you have questions, please use the Q&A box to put them in, put them in so we can also keep your questions uh, flowing through the dialogue since I know we're over the halfway mark. And one of the things that I love that you spoke about, which I wanted to talk about as well, is digital tools as solutions um, to this problem. Like we know um, 2.2 million women of childbearing age live in what is known as a maternity care desert. Um, the, the lower part of our district, Illinois 02, women have to drive an hour away to receive any type of care. And, you know, I know you could probably speak to like, if you need to drive an hour away to receive care for all the appointments that you have to meet, th- that's cumbersome and, and you probably wouldn't even do this. You know, and then you and and what do the, what does that equate to even more? 150 babies being born in, in maternity care deserts, and so you know when you spoke about the smart app, and that was how you were able to receive mental health services. As we think about digital tools, right? The maybe one of the silver linings of the COVID 19 pandemic was telehealth. Mm. Um, and, and I've heard the Congresswoman say that she does believe that telehealth can be a great tool at um, bridging the gap of health equity, but we have to make sure that people have the underlying infrastructure, right? I love how you were just talking about all the different structures that we don't think is healthcare, mm-hmm. but it is. Broadband internet. Yes. That is healthcare. <laughs> um, you know, we think about these things in, in different aspects, but they overall uh, mean like care for people. And so, you know, mental health services, being able to digitally and remote uh, monitor people's situations. When we talk about Black maternal health, we have to think about high blood pressures mm-hmm. right? because of everything that's going on uh, to make sure they don't go into preeclampsia. And I know you work a lot in trying to bridge some of these, these gaps with technologies and innovation in the women's health space. And so So I would love to just listen more about like what you have seen in this space regarding like telehealth and digital tools that could help us also bring down that maternal mortality rate. For sure. And I I love this question. And then um, before I forget, if we can go back to the doula part after this question, because I, I I forgot to say something really significant there. So in terms of the use, you, you hit, you, you hit the nail on the head there, Megan, the, you know, during COVID, um, and and it's good for the audiences to also know that parts of the Mama's Act that you called out, um, some of those passed during COVID, right? And so 
that was when the nation, I mean, really legislators in a lot of ways are starting to really pay greater attention to this issue of maternal health and, and, um, and specifically mortality and morbidity. And what we also saw through various packages, um, Cures 2.0 and, you know, the, the CARES Act, um, you saw numbers, you saw budgets, budget lines being um, allocated for investments in broadband, for invest, for, you know, um, laws that move the needle with respect to reimbursement for telehealth care, um, especially as people were remaining in their homes, but still needing to present for critical care, right? And so now that's the norm, right? I'm not saying that had it not been for COVID, that would never happen. But what I am saying is that wouldn't have happened now, right? And so now we are in a space where in with respect to 21st century medicine, we've got to be able to contend with the role of um, of non-healthcare providers of healthcare, right? In, in terms of um, being able to facilitate good care. So if you're talking about the role of, of smart apps, like one app that might be useful for people who are considering having a child and you're looking for providers of color, um, the, the app is called Earth and it's developed by maybe um, the NMQF staff can uh, can pull this up. I'm not saying this to endorse the app itself, but I'm just spreading um, information about a particular tool. Tools like that, or tools like um, uh, built by another woman of color um, called Poppy Seed. Um, these are these are apps that help people to find not only um, resources in terms of birthing peoples to to help us you know um, assist with actual birthing but also resources for before and after giving birth so those are two that I would that I would certainly assert um, I would also say that when you're looking at uh, the birthing process within within a clinical environment there there are a number of um, of research studies that are coming out now that that show, differing levels of, of impact with respect to using AI technology or artificial intelligence or autonomous intelligence um, to assist uh, providers in their clinical decision-making tools. But I will say that that's not necessarily a panacea, right? Because there, we know historically that when you're dealing with any kind of tool in the healthcare space, historically, they've not been built with Black and Brown birthing peoples in mind. Um, I think we're starting to see a shift in terms of cognizance and therefore a shift in terms of intention to use data to fuel these, the algorithm, the other algorithmic systems of these tools so that the output is commiserate with the needs, the unique needs of black and brown peoples, right? But one of the most egregious um, tools that's touted as quite innovative, but is, had been, you know, um, potentially harmful for Black women is the the VBAC, which is based on the VBAC is a tool that that uh, physicians and providers use um, when trying to decide if a woman should um, should pursue a vaginal birth or a a, a cesarean. Um, and based on the score, the outcome score, the physician really generally or the um, usually the physician pushes pushes that decision. And when you're talking about women who are in, you know, splayed out or, you know, and, and not really, you know, um, harmonially in a space that they're used to, 
you might go with whatever the decision of the of the provider is and it's, it, it can be stressful so we want to make sure and and the thing about the VBAC historically it provided a score that suggested that um, more black and that black and brown women more so than white women um, should have a cesarean um, that's that's historically what it had been and you can look all of this up this is not anything I'm just pulling out of my the side of my neck you know, um, I, and the other thing I should say is I study this. So my my current doctoral studies have to do uh, at the intersection of of health um, equity policy and and AI. And so um, these are all scenarios that theoretically I read about all the time. And then now as a mother and someone who has given birth, I think about it in a different in a different way. What I will say that's not necessarily technology related, but I found them. Um, through the internet is I I hired doulas to assist me through my my entire present uh, pregnancy. Um, I, I I shared this at the most recent NMQF um, health summit that I hired three doulas, three doulas to see me through. And and I will say I feel very blessed that I was in a position to do that. But doulas are expensive, and it is it is quite a um, a barrier for a lot of people to um, to seek that level of support. However, we need to be able to ensure that doulas and midwives, to your earlier point, Megan, are a part of the birthing process. Um, and, and they had been historically nationally, you know, in the nation, particularly in the US South, but we do know that um, due to all kinds of politics that have to do with policies that are, are built, you know, by, by people who may or may not look like us at the, at the table, um, at the decision table, uh, but now we do see um, policies that are vying for, uh, for you know, reimbursement for you know, commiserate reimbursement for for doulas for doulas for midwives and so forth. So I I really look forward to Mama 2.0 to bringing that to the forefold. But yeah, I had I had a doula for my um, perinatal experience, birthing doula and a postpartum doula, and um, one of them served me on both occasions. Um, but but I will say that it made the difference. It made all the difference in the world. I could not have done it without my doulas. And that's the stories that we hear all the time. And you know, one of the questions that's in that's in right now is how can one one make more effective use of stories, narratives in the health policy making space? And you know, I think for me, and, and, and you alluded to it too, like stories are what help move us, right? When the 1,200 1, 1200 women die each year doesn't resonate for you, it's that story that really helps bring the numbers home to people. Um, and, and unfortunately, sometimes it takes the names I think that we know of and can relate to quickly for the masses, but the stories are really what helps pull, push legislation, I think, behind the scenes. And, you know, I can just speak for me, listening to your story, listening to so many women's story. That's what how we have built Mamas 2.0, right? When people are, are telling us, no, I want more community-based centers to help give birth. I, you know, hearing people say, I want to give birth at home. I want midwives and doulas as part of my birthing team. And another thing that we're looking at too, based on stories is, you alluded to it, the research, right? Um, women and pregnant and lactate women are typically seen as a vulnerable population. And so during the COVID-19 pandemic, we, you know, as vaccines were rolling out, people are like, well, can pregnant women take it? Can lactating women? Take I remember, and, and they whispered it just like that. 
and all of us who are like, I don't know, like, what does the research show? And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think we realized someone became pregnant during the study. (laughs) Like, we literally tracked like two cases and was like, I think it's safe. But I I was uh, vaccinated and boosted all during my pregnancy. See? And so, you know, we had to do these real world examples and another piece that we're trying to think through, you know, with these stories that are told to us is how do we incorporate pregnant and lactating women into research so we know what's safe for them, so we know what medications they can take, because um, I'll, I'll give you this story, we were just thinking about oncology care. And, and, you know, just because you're pregnant doesn't mean the oncology and the cancer in your body takes a pause. And, you know, (laughs) depending on where you are in your pregnancy, six months may be too long for you to wait uh, to receive treatment. And so, you know, these are just little things that I think are hugely impactful in making sure the whole, whole person is taken care of. And so, you know, for that question, that's how we move legislation in our office from the stories is we try to act on them as quickly as possible to make sure that the whole woman is taken care of. But I don't know if you want to give an example of stories uh, and how you think through policy through stories. Yeah, I mean, as a former staffer, the stories matter, right? But I will say all stories are data and all data are stories, right? So if you're talking about numbers data, it's hard for people to, as as you've mentioned, it's hard for people to really understand what the numbers are. Like if I say to you one in 10, it's, you can, I mean, I don't know what comes to your mind. Think about, because I have a toddler, think about Cheerios. Think about if you lay out 10 Cheerios, right? On your, on your, on your, uh, your, your table. And you say to yourself, one in 10 of these Cheerios is going to be eaten by a toddler eventually, right? Um, And that is inevitable. It's going to happen. It's easier for you to to recognize those numbers. But if you say something like one in 100,000 births result in a maternal death, right? It's harder for people to really imagine 100,000 right? For a number of reasons. It's just not a number that people deal with on a, on a regular basis. But if you say Shalanda Irving was one woman out of 100,000 who died three weeks after giving birth to her daughter, Soleil, which is true. A woman who was a nurse out of Johns Hopkins passed away after she gave birth. And she was a, a, a researcher for NIH, I believe, on maternal health, of all things and she died, Black woman, right? So so putting a, num- a name to that one matters, but you've got to be also able to understand the numbers, because if you don't understand the numbers, then the nation's not going to listen either, and members of Congress are not going to m- listen, because it's almost like it takes a tipping... Miss Kelly wrote, and I wrote the Mamas Act in 2017. It is only recently that now we're seeing a whole suit of all kinds of maternal health bill. Now we're seeing other members of Congress paying attention to it. Now we're seeing that, you know, other research, all kinds of researchers coming up with reasons, you know, doing the science to come up with reasons why. We're seeing um, national stories take off, right? It, it took a long time for people to really start to wrap their heads around the stories, right? But once the stories started to enumerate, then, it, you know, the ball started to roll. So you need both. You need the qualitative as well as the quantitative data. I do not think, um, and I do want to give hope to the person who put this question in the chat, I, I would not lose hope about members of Congress not 
paying attention to quote unquote health disparity numbers. People pay attention to it very, um, very, I'd say certain language might land more or less with with people depending on how you present it. So if you're talking to a member of Congress who's a part of the Democratic Party, you can use, I would say, terminologies like health disparity or health equity, right? If you're talking to a member of Congress uh, of the Republican Party and you want to convey the same message, you've got to use different language. It's all the same thing. And you might want to say the economics associated with risk to giving birth, right? That is is literally the same story of health equity inequities of birth, but couched in a way that resonates specifically with that member of Congress. And you have to be able to learn that language. You mentioned before, I, I speak three languages. I speak three languages because I need to know, you know, because I was living in a space where no one understood me. So if you go into it, and I had to learn, right? Like I did, they didn't need to learn how I talked. I need to learn how they talk. So it's the same with policies. If you're going into a space and you don't know the language, you've got it. Well, rather, if you're going into a space, you've got to learn the language. And if you don't know the language, just ask someone. That's it. Yeah. No, I love that answer. And I think it kind of alluded to a great tie-in back to where we first started regarding how do we make sure clinicians even understand policy Mm -hmm. and the languages that we use? Because, you know, a lot of people talk about health literacy, right? And 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 so now we need to start talking about policy policy literacy and, mm-hmm. and how to move legislation and what are the key words and how do you change your messaging for who you're speaking to. And so I think that's a whole different webinar that we 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 can set up on yeah. ways to train people on how to talk to your legislature. Um, but there's another question and it is a beautiful question because it deals with the workforce, right? To what degree does exhaustion and burnout contribute to overburdened care providers? providers not always being able to listen appropriately to patients? What can policymakers do to address oppressive organizational system issues that unfortunately help create above problems? And that's a great question. And I think like coming from the other side, you know, a lot of times clinicians are working to metrics. Yes. Clinicians are working to how many patients can I see in this hour? Like, you know, you're saying something like, I have a headache, I have a stomach ache. What's the more logical thing? Have you slept? Have you have you had water today? Have you had water? (laughs) And so you're like, I don't typically have headaches, I typically don't have this. And so unfortunately, because of those constraints, I think that's a lot of times what people uh, feel and see is not being heard. And I'll, I'll do an example. We were looking at two different providers in the same, um, in the same group. One provider had horrible scores because he would get people in and out, like literally that 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then the other provider, people were frustrated because he doesn't see enough patients, Mm -hmm. but he had the best scores in terms of listening. He would sit there and give you all the time in the world. And patients felt like he really took care of them, listened to their concerns, educated them, right? I think that's a huge piece. We don't really have a lot of time to do that true education deep dive piece that I think a lot of people crave and want, but don't really know the questions to ask. And so when you're looking at scenarios like that, the the productivity versus the quality of it, um, I think we need to do a better job at balancing those metrics. And so some things that happen behind the scenes, for example, is reimbursements, right? Like mm-hmm. Medicare will send surveys to uh, Medicare beneficiaries saying, 
Were you explaining your medications, your signs and symptoms? How well did your physician communicate with you? How well did your nurse communicate with you? And so I think there might be opportunity there to help make sure those who are tie incentives and, 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 and tie the incentives to, to the quality and the outcomes we want to see. Um, because a lot of times just from that system and organizational structure, those are some of the levers on the federal level that we can pull um, to, to, to try to, to, to shift. But I'll let you make a comment if you want. Uh, no, all of that is, is, is exactly right, you know, and when you're talking about what do you do, oh, so the one, an, another resource that I throw out here to the crowd, if you've not, you know, because it goes back to my comment about knowing the territory and knowing the language of um, policymakers, if you've not yet read the Institute of Medicine, it was then called the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences, if you've not read un, uh, Unequal Treatment, or to err is human. I highly encourage you to read both of these reports, right? Because these are these are the most seminal works, um, the foundational works, I'd say, with respect to what health health inequities are, what health disparities are, as well as the Heckler report, um, written by then Secretary of HHS Margaret Heckler in 1985, and um, and she herself used to be a member of Congress and she was a Republican. Uh, I'm gonna actually get to the question, but I do want to make sure that I'm talking about these reports. So the, the report that I just named is the Heckler Report, H-E-C-K-L-E-R, named for Margaret Heckler. You can just look it up. It actually has a lot larger title, longer title, um, but it goes by the Heckler Report. To Air is Human, Institute of Medicine. And if you read nothing else, you must read unnatural, uh, Unequal Treatment also by the Institute of Medicine. And um, in unequal treatment, there's an entire section that talks about bias, right? Um, and let me just be clear. We all operate on some level of bias, with, with some level of bias, especially when we are stressed out or especially when, when we are heightened, right? You can think of any kind of, and actually it serves the body well. Do not misconstrue me. I am not saying bias is good. What I am saying is that when we when it comes down to scenarios where you have to make very quick decisions, usually your 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 brain is set up to respond to something that is associated with something else. You, that usually happens when somebody is stressed out. So if you're talking about providers who are burnt out, who are stressed out, in those scenarios, you have a lot of people who are not tapping into reserves, right? They're, they may have spiritual reserves. They may have other reserves that really sustain them, help them to be a bit more resilient. But when, when it comes down to just biology, a lot of people are re responding to um, something that reminds them of something else. And, and there's only one answer that, it could, that, that could come out of that, um, out of that reaction. And that, an that answer is based on a biased uh, a bias response, or rather, is a could potentially be a bias response, right? So, if you're talking about a stressed out physician who all day has has been seeing really very hard patients, and all of a sudden their final client is a black woman complaining of a headache, for whatever reason, they may be so stressed out at that time that they're only coming to one conclusion about what her headache is, and that's that. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying understand how that happens. 
Um, and so when you then when you then layer that on top of people's thoughts around race, people's thoughts around gender, people's thoughts around age, it's really hard to untangle. Um, you know what the it's really hard to untangle the the bias itself from what ought have have been communicated by the by the provider. And so I say all that to say you just have to understand that that everyone does that to some extent, short, short circuits themselves. I don't know if you can hear all these ambulances, Lord of mercy, I hope everything is okay. Um, you know, people short circuit to get to the right answer. Um, that can be harmful in medicine. It is often harmful in medicine. So what do you do for scenarios like that? There have to be, you know, going back to your point earlier about mental health services, there have to be built-in processes within clinical walls and across different care systems to answer to the, you know, to really care for the care provider, right? And if someone is working in an environment where that is not there, then they are not only doing a disservice to their employee base, but they're obviously doing a disservice to their patients. And I know we're short on time. I feel like we can talk about that part forever, Megan. I would love to get your experience, you, you know, with that as a nurse yourself, um, yeah. perhaps in the future. No, a hundred percent. And and I, and I was just going to say a hundred percent of what you said about the mental health of the clinician as well. You know, so many times, and I think that you know, there might be some incentive structures there. I've heard clinicians say, I want to seek services, but I'm scared of what it would do to my licensure, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole conversation about clinicians and their mental health to make sure their cup is full so they can pour into someone else. But we are at time. And so I- What I will say, a lot of people, unfortunately, committed suicide during COVID. And so yes. we really saw that that, you know, that has to happen. You know, that has oh. to be a destigmatized priority. A hundred percent. And so thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciated it. Um, I did see one more uh, cute question that said, can you please repeat the report name? So it's being recorded and we'll get that information to everyone um, when it gets sent out. So thank you. Do you have any parting wor words for us? The final thing I'll say is, because this is also just a women's health conversation, earlier this week, the United States Preventive Services Task Force dropped guidelines with respect to breast um, breast preventive screening. And so for those who are women or people with breast on the call, now, now the screening guidelines say that women beginning at the age of 40 and every other year after, those with an average risk of breast cancer ought to receive um, a mammogram every two years. Um, and that, cha that change is, is, is pretty significant because the previous guidelines said that that should start at age 50. But what we saw were black and brown women dying way sooner um, in advanced stages of, of disease. So um, yeah, take a look at those guidelines, talk to your family members. And again, for those of average risk of breast cancer, starting at age 40, get your mammogram. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining the call. Be on the lookout for Mamas 2.0. The Congresswoman is super excited, and we are partners uh, in this fight together. So I will just say, I know the Congresswoman will say her office is open. So please let us know how we can be of service. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Megan.